1: is Warden's Watch. So Warden's Watch episode 34, Lieutenant Estes. So and it's Rick Estes and for years and, and I have a tendency to do this John on our, our episodes I get names wrong, last okay. names especially. I've called Lieutenant Estes, <laughs> I called for 20 years I called them Estes and on this podcast okay. he corrects me Estes and that was, that was again an eye-opener for 20 years I called him the wrong name but just a Uh, uh, we're we're talking about Woods Wise people. We just got off doing a Thin Green Line podcast with uh, Paul Rella, former state police, about prepping and and talking about prepping. And that's going to be on our next Thin Green Line episode. And I think about these Woods Wise people, and Lieutenant Estes comes to mind, um, still – manufactures a fold-out saw so he, he if you go to his owl roost uh, website you can get this fold-out saw that just folds out you get a nice little saw blade there you put it together and you know next to a knife a saw and a hatchet are probably the next thing you're gonna want and to make those woods wise stuff and uh, the other thing we talked about a bee line which I haven't thought about a bee line forever but following the bees back and forth the honey to right, their right really really interesting to get perspective from one of these guys that has all that woods wisdom you know so important right now you know to, to go back to those basics like we talk about on the thin green line with Paul back to the basics back to the wood wise so, so yeah
2: imp- incredibly important Wayne and, and he, he is one of those you know he's kind of one of those lost art kind of guys right that mm-hmm. we're just losing all the time as we get more urbanized and we get more you know processed things delivered to us and you know we don't go out and hunt and gather and survive and build shelters and, and, and really read mother nature to survive. And now in the advent of COVID-19, all of a sudden this stuff's in vogue again and everybody's sitting around listening to survival stories and, and, and the how-to preppers mm. like uh, what a great guy. It just interviewing and Paul. And, and now with that's just coming on and his, his amazing story, it's going to be, it's going to be good stuff for the listeners. And I know you and I learned a lot from that as well. What a, what a, Wealth of knowledge he brings to the table, especially in uh, what we're learning today worldwide with this pandemic.
1: Yeah, and then we're going to learn some more stuff with Lieutenant Estes today. Uh, you know, a lot of things of the, the beginning of the organization wasn't the beginning of the New Hampshire Search and Rescue Team, but it was more the organization that he took on and formed that. And that's going to lead into our next episode with uh, uh, another guy that was very influential into bringing the technical side to that, and that's Rick Wilcox. So that'll that'll be uh, probably our next episode. Up, ap- you know, just kind of building a foundation to move to the next frame, so people can get an idea and then we can go into some of the search and rescue missions that new hampshire does because that's one aspect of our job that is very different than a lot of agencies around the country that we're responsible in new hampshire for search and rescue we have the white mountains that are very technical uh no trees grow on the top so we have tree you know tree line and they're they're small mountains comparatively to most things but some of the most dangerous mountains in in the world And it just to, to form that search and rescue team, uh, you know that was that was some of his legacy certainly didn 't start it, but he he started putting it together. You know how that is when when you get a group together and it, you just say, "Hey, now we need to have some rules, we need to have some expectations. we need to have some goals, and we need to meet those so uh, just just really interesting I, I I enjoy every podcast, but I, I enjoyed this one I enjoyed going back in and learning about uh, my agency and the formation of this and uh, you know and the importance of it today.
2: And I like what you said, Wayne, about what, what he brings from the standpoint of the search and rescue element for your home state. But what few people realize is, again, wildlife officers, game wardens, conservation officers nationwide, even worldwide. We wear a lot of different shoes and a lot of different hats, don't we? And most of us are involved in search and rescue on some level, regardless right. of you know different technical levels. But we get roped into that. And it's just one of the many game warden jobs that this particular podcast with Lieutenant is going to really highlight. How critical that is, as we're so far in in, you know the backwoods, we're so far out of reach that we need to be the guys and the gals to come in and help with you know a a crazy over the edge, uh, a winter survival catastrophe, the case may be. This is one we haven't discussed yet, and I'm I'm excited to see what he what he's brought to the table and what our what our viewers and listeners are going to really get out of it.
1: And I just found out I've been saying his name wrong for twenty plus years. It's Estes, and uh, I always used to say S T S. After twenty something years getting corrected for that, I've just uh, kind of blown away, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you,
3: <laughs> yeah. Getting, well, making the effort.
1: <laughs> and some of with these podcasts, his names have been a struggle. Mm-hmm. Like Mark Rutowski, and I still probably say that wrong out of Pennsylvania. It's, it's a challenge sometimes, but Estes isn't that isn't that much of a challenge, it's just knowing and hearing STs all the time. <laughs> I'm sure I heard STs, but I just, uh, yeah, I heard more STs. <laughs> so that's that, that's good that we got this straightened out after 20 years. You know, I always, you know, growing up, uh, my relationship with Sergeant Bryant, you were, you were his lieutenant, mm-hmm. just always kind of on the periphery of, of me growing up and you seeing seeing you run situations and a lot of search and rescue, for sure, and uh, just being in and around the Lakes region. And, yeah, I was always kind of looked up to you, too, as I did every game warden in those days,
3: ex- inspiring to be one. So that was pretty cool. I, I would dare say that most game wardens had some influence from a former law, law enforcement officer. I know I did. I mean, I... And who was that? Uh... Well, I rubbed a lot of elbows with the Bill Hastings and Pete Lyon and Paul Tasker's of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up in the Lakes region. All wardens before your... Oh, way before my time. Oh, mm-hmm. Well, I said And that, in your time. You know, uh, I worked with all of them. Yeah, yes. In, in the long run. Uh, uh-huh. not Paul, not so much. I, I worked for him for a year or two here in District 2. Uh-huh. After I left traineeship down in... Southern part of the state I started out down to In the Milford area mm-hmm. um, And then Steve Rollins retired Out of Alton And was able to uh, There eventually Another long story of Which we won't get yep. into but it worked out fine. I I did not quite enough water for a lakes region boy down in, in Milford, so I needed to get back up here where there was water in the lakes region. Right. So how many years in New Hampshire Fish and Game did you have? So I got out of the service in 1974, uh, uh, 73, excuse me, and I worked for Wolfboro Police Department um, for about a year and a half and then went to work for fishing Game till 2002. So... If you take all my retirement time, it was about twenty nine years. Then mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I think we all stay on as a, as a deputy for a little while. So yeah, and you should be able to count that. I think. So uh, I, I I would agree. I did my thirty. You know, let's put mm-hmm. it that way. So, um, but I after a while you <laughs> you get over you know the the shock of not doing the job anymore, and and you move on with something else. I started my guiding business about four years before I retired. So I would have something that I could. That was smart. Well, I don't know how smart it was, but it, 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 it it seemed like a good progression from where I was to, to the next job. And I'd done that for 20 years and now I've retired from that. So I've retired twice actually. Yeah. But, but
1: you're right. You mentioned that shock of not being mm-hmm. a game warden anymore and i have experienced it and i always tell people i felt like i jumped off a cliff and i was waiting to land and you know when i was trying to figure out how to land and at yep. least you four years prior to you softened the blow a little
3: well by having I, I, a plan yeah the, 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 <laughs> I, i'd love to tell you that I, it was a brilliant move on my part but quite frankly it wasn't what it was was i wanted the drift boat <laughs> and I found out that I could get a fairly good discount as a guide on a drift boat. So I said, mm-hmm. well, I wrote the test. I ought to be able to pass it. So right. I went down and took it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's good to know now. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, that, that, yeah, since then, I became licensed in Maine and New Hampshire and um, did a. About eleven years in uh, the Parmachini area of of Maine, and uh, worked for Boz Mountain Camps for being their head guide for, like I said, ten or eleven seasons.
1: Nice, and had a stellar career on that. Yeah, it
3: was. Uh, you know, it. And a lot of nice people. You know. Yes. You're. you're um, it's it's uh, fly fishermen in general are uh, they're in for the whole package. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just go there and take a fish home and eat it it's it's the entomology it's uh all the things that go with um fly fishing that make them uh well they're a little bit more on my on my scale of of what happens in the outdoors right
1: from the the, the insects to the tying of the flies yeah, to yeah. the equipment yeah. and then to run a drift boat down a river yeah. and yeah well that, that's
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hi- learning the hydraulics of, of rivers is, I you know, it's I, I guided on the Kennebec over in Maine, and I guided a lot on the Indiscoggan, so, yeah. Nice, and uh,
1: yeah, caught some big fish, I'm assuming.
3: We have on occasion. I mean, things come and go just like everything else, you know, but um, I, I think the greatest satisfaction, of course, is up in... Um, Pomacini where all those fish that had never seen a hatchery it was all wild fish so they and, it,
1: and it's a total different experience oh yeah with a wild fish compared to a hatchery fish no, isn't it absolutely yeah and when you hook one you know it
3: well yeah i mean there, there's some your chances of catching a three four pound brook trout are pretty good up in that country you know as you well know about yeah just over that invisible line between pittsburgh and and uh Lynchtown um, mm-hmm. it's like a lot of the same things happen up in northern New Hampshire that happened in, in Parmacini so yeah no, no, no doubt no but doubt. there's a lot of history on all of those places you know the Androscoggin, you you know from log drives to mm-hmm. all the stuff that ever happened to the Androscoggin is is just a lot a lot of history there
1: right. And we used to have camps up there. There's a camp at Hellgate that used to be a game Absolutely. camp.
3: Absolutely. Yep.
1: And that's to, because we'd have to go into an area and actually stay because it was so remote in there. We didn't have modern vehicles to get in and out. Right. And we had those planted all around the state at one point.
3: Yeah. I mean, we, we you know, you had Blackbrook Camp in, over on Winnesquam, which was, oh, in the springtime. There was a... There was a game warden in that camp all spring, um, and generally several, because we had big smelt runs, and it was...
1: So we had someone there protecting the resource well, yeah. 24-7 while they were running.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was a place that you could always find the game. It was like a regional office, <laughs> you know. There's always somebody there, so...
1: Yeah, you've seen some changes. That's for sure. I mean, I've even seen some changes, like the moose season. You know, from going from the the busiest season of my day to now, it's 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 probably the slowest season of a game warden season in northern oh, no Hampshire. Geez. But you had the smelt runs of the oh, day, and yep. Yep. that was pretty intense as far as harvesting and having smelt. And today, our resources aren't what they were.
3: No, no. Uh, well, and, and plus we've we've started to manage. Uh, that forge fish base a lot different within the Hampshire Fishing Game Department than we used to. It was, you know, I, it, we came to realize that without the smelt, without the forge fish base, that we wouldn't <laughs> have the fishery that we have in the big lakes. Uh, right, you know, and so we we, we eventually um, started protect them a little bit more than we did before, but.
1: Yeah, putting some restrictions on, enforcing that, and then uh, paying attention to it on the biology end, and trying to promote growth again. Right, right. After after yeah. we failed.
3: Well, I don't know that we failed as much as anybody who. My my opinion, my my view of smelt populations is: if somebody tells you they know why they come and go, they're either kidding themselves or they're on some other fantasy because it's, it's very difficult to understand how those populations, why those populations crash and why they don't. And, uh, you know, it's,
1: and you were in a tenure when we actually tried to take some of those from Blackbrook and place them in other ponds and places right, to, right, to, to increase right. the small populations there.
3: Yeah. And then when we, you know, and then, um, came the, Using the copper sulfate to take care of some of the um, weed problems in Winnesquam and just decimated the smelt smelt population. Right. It was the end. That was the end of it. And tried to help. We we hurt them. Well, and before we. Uh, sign up as the we who put that sulfate in there. That wasn't the fish and game department. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. And I, the we is,
1: I, I always think, is a general population type yeah, thing. Is yeah, yeah, making yeah. those management decisions sometimes, every time we man and g- tries to do something good, it seems to spin sometimes.
3: Well, you, don't, you, you know, it's... Um we don't always know the answers. It's, mm-hmm. it's not. Uh, it. We'd love to think it's an exact science, but a lot enters into it. Whether it's, you know, whether it's chemicals or whether it's weather. There's any number of things that enter into wildlife management that make it very dynamic and, quite frankly, not an exact science.
1: Yeah. Any smelt cases come to your mind that you guys work? Oh my. You know? I mean that that used to be uh, the what my moose season used to be cuz you used to have tons of fishermen out there dipping and you know so drinking going on and I you know I I hear the stories of uh smelt fishermen and then when it started to get restrictions well
3: and and, and that's you, you know when we were talking before about my my exposure to uh game wardens, that's probably where it started in Lake Wentworth uh I born and raised in Wolfboro, there's been a nestus in Wolfboro since the 1600s. Um, I, I broke the mold. I was the last one <laughs> to move out and went to uh, um Willie Brook was one of those places where uh, there was a great congregation of of uh, smelt fishermen. It was quite different than it is today. There was people lined up down the brook. The Lions Club had a little sh- shanty there that on a trailer that they sold hot dogs and coffee it was quite an episode and there was always the bull of the brook he stood up on the bridge there on 109 and nobody nobody got into the brook until the bull of the brook said "Take 'em, boys and then they'd all dive in get their limit or more and leave well then we found out that you could go on shore and set up a lantern and that because of the zooplankton that was attracted um by the by the light it attracted the smelt and they'd come in and we started dipping them in the lake which that's when my father and I would go down and we'd set up the lantern and we'd get our limit and then we'd we'd leave the lantern and within well, a little after midnight usually uh, three, four game ones show up, take our nets, dip their limit, and go home.
1: <laughs> and
3: take the lantern with them. No, no, no. no leave no. it going. No, we, we, we would pack up when they were done and we'd go home. and okay. That was a nightly ritual in the huh. spring. Yeah. Pete, uh, Paul, uh, Jimmy Jones. I can remember Jimmy Jones. <laughs> God rest his soul. He's long gone now. He was uh, assistant chief of law enforcement in the end. Then he went to the to the uh, federal government for another 20 years anyway he came (laughs) they wanted to bring Jimmy down and show him how to to smell fish and he was you know ice wasn't hardly out Mm -hmm. water water temperatures were still in the 30s when this happens and the uh, lantern started to tip over and somebody said to Jimmy grab that lantern before it goes in the water and he, he moved pretty quickly and filled his waders, and then we had to go get him because the shock of that cold water <laughs> took, completely took his breath away, you know. Oh, uh,
1: man. We had to fish him out. <laughs> and the smelter on his waders, too.
3: <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't remember guys with those little turquoise boat-shaped um, things that you have for kiddie pools and coming, pulling them out with just chuck a block full of smelt.
1: Really, just kind of sinking them and then bringing them up. No,
3: they just was fill. They'd go fill just them up, fill
1: them up. Solid with smelt. Yeah. Wow. I just can't even
3: picture that. I mean, I don't know how many quarts you can put in one of those, but way over four quarts. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Do you, you think that
1: the pressure we put on it during that time had something to do with the, the you smelt demise? Know, like or? I
3: said, I, if anybody can explain to you why those populations crash or not, uh, I, I've never met that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's its a very, uh, if you've got too many, it'll crash. Right. Um, sometimes I've seen that. I mean, over here in Ospie Lake, where, where I live, um, I, I, those smelt well, Willard Stockbridge, who was a long time gone game warden, um, he tried to buy it from the guy, but that guy caught a smelt that was twenty-two inches long. Twenty-two inch smelt is—that's a good one.
1: Yeah, I, yeah,
3: yeah. I've never even they, heard they, of the one like that. Big. They, they, we get guys over here that catch them trolling, fourteen, fifteen inch yep. smelt. Uh, I mean, you just don't find those. Mm. That size smelt. And smelt fishing in Osby Lake was done from barges. I don't know any place else in the state where anybody ever fished that way except for Osby Lake.
1: Was it because of the depth? Because I remember the bear camp.
3: They'd come up the bear camp and they used nets with 20-foot handles Mm. on them. And they got on barges with lights and they would dip them uh, from the barges. Mm. It's the only place I ever knew that to happen.
1: Right, pretty neat that they could actually get down there and get up and still have smelt. So there was there was yeah. a there was a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't see those in today's. Uh, no,
3: well, I I, I and I, I'm not sure if there's anybody that still fishes that way over on,
1: on, on the bear camp. Yeah, I remember checking the bear camp several times as a trainee going down there, and I don't remember ever seeing it. We always kept an eye on it, but I don't like you said it was such a deep lake and i heard those stories too yeah. but never never really experienced anybody actually doing that yeah. but i think it might have even been with you rick when we went down there right. to hear those stories uh, but anyways uh yeah so almost 30 years in fishing game you, you were a sergeant as well
3: uh, yep yep i uh well i guess if you really want to know how this all started it was in the eighth grade my old English teacher, Ernie Bainton, said, yeah, okay, wanted everybody to write a little paper about what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's probably the only A I ever got in. <laughs> <laughs> but right then and there, I said, yeah, I'm going to be a game warden. <clears throat> nice. And if you look at my high school yearbook, it says I wanted to be, and it, it was just a lifelong thing that I wanted to do. And it, again, it was probably because of my indoctrination from...
1: From your father, yeah, the, brother, brother, an experience with those brother. guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mentors, uh, people Yeah, well, up I to. mean, you
3: know, geez, the big, tall guys with uh, Stetsons, and wow, you know? Mm. For a young guy, that's.
1: <laughs> I, I know the impression. I, I, <laughs> it, la- it had a lasting
3: impression on me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah so I, then I <clears throat> went down to the university for a short period of time until they told me I probably ought to. Try something different <laughs> so i uh that was when they were drafting people uh into the service for Vietnam, and uh my draft number was very close to so I said well. I'll fool them. So I went and enlisted in the Air Force for four years instead of being in the Army for two years and went to the same places. It didn't make any difference. It yeah. was not one of my better moves. Yeah. But four years of character building, uh, so. so I uh, I got through it. And uh, actually, I ended up in Idaho, uh, the last of me being in the service. And In those days, they would do what they call a project transition. They tried to transition you from... Being in the military, back into civilian life, and allow you to move, work in in uh, some profession you think you want to do. And I just, it didn't work out that I could work um, for the Idaho Fish and Game for whatever reason. So I worked for Boise City and Ada County Sheriff's Department uh, for six months before I got out. So I took my test and actually took my written test in Idaho. For New Hampshire. Yeah. Nice. And came back and interviewed. And it was, I think it was 250 applicants for no positions. (laughs) And uh, the only three guys out of that 250 was Doug Menzies, Ed Kenoya, and me were the only people that got hired out of those 250 over a course of... However long the register ran in those days, mm-hmm. so it and wasn't
1: the, really quick when you came back,
3: or oh, it was about a year and a half that I okay. worked for. And Wolfboro knew that I told the chief where I was going to go, mm-hmm. um, and he was okay with that. He got a year and a half out of me, so he was happy. Yeah, and you get some fundamental police type skills. Plus, that, it was the same retirement system, which mm-hmm. you know. I don't think any of us took this this job looking at retirement in the beginning, right? But in the end, it's nice. In the in the end, it's you've probably passed up a number of opportunities to make more money or spend less time doing it. But um, yeah, there's no better job in the world than being a game one. I I would have
1: totally agree, and that's great to hear from somebody of your tenure and you know that same time frame and. Hopefully, generations to come are going to be saying that, that same type of thing. So I was just on a podcast myself, and they asked me, you know, hey, if you had to go back 25 years again, what would you do? I'd be, be a game warden. <laughs> you know, that's my, you know, when, when I talk to kids, you know, be a game warden. That's 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 the best job
3: you're ever going to have. So. Yeah, I it's a quote, and I, and I can't do it, but in the essence what it is, it's the job that uh, – all grown ups wish they 'd done, and little boys wish they could <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and there 's a few and that I, do and and little girls too <laughs> yes, yes,
1: absolutely yeah we we certainly have some of those which do a great job yep. so but any highlights for your career that you can think cases
3: uh you were on the dive team yep, I did yeah. the dive team for twelve years, i believe um and, you know, all of those, now, well, that wasn't quite so gratifying because the the save rate on, on dive team was just zero. I mean, you didn't go there unless you were looking for you know, somebody who passed on. Yes. Uh, but, you know, you, you you had the opportunity of um, bringing some closure to some families that mm-hmm. wouldn't have gone it any other way. And... um or would have had to wait or you know. Right. So there's there's some gratification there. Um, it's never it doesn't appear. I can't remember many dives where it was like diving in the Caribbean. It was always a nasty place where you couldn't Yeah. And uh and my first drowning of course was happened to be a kid. Um and those are the ones you remember. I do anyway. I've quite frankly can't remember all the names, but that first one was a young kid who was sliding and with his brothers and cousins or whatever down in Hancock and and uh, slid underneath a bridge and into open water and the current took him right underneath the ice and, mm. and that was a tough one. Yeah, no doubt. I'm curious, was that a runner sled? Yeah
1: and why i ask is we don't see runner sleds i mean we see them but we don't use them like you guys used to use them back in the day my dad talks about going down roads oh yeah close by here with a runner sled and uh smoking like like 45 miles an hour because the runner sled that's the it's all ice and that's why there was a runner sled in existence (laughs) and you could steer it and then you get back in the pickup and they drive you all the way to the top and you do it
3: again and I don't think people understand. Uh, Well, that's that. That that, yeah, that we did a lot of that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know. And I, I, I think I still have my father's runner sled. But the the uh, the thing that stuck in my mind there. Now we're regressing here, but uh, yeah, (laughs) the thing that struck in my mind there was I my aunt and uncle uh, had six kids. They lived down in Cotton Valley, where my father was originally from in Wolfboro. Mm-hmm. And Cotton Mountain is pretty, eh, well, about like here, a pretty formidable hill. Yeah. Know? And uh, my uncle was a, <laughs> was a carpenter, and he made what's called a double runner. And what it was was two sleds hooked together by a long plank. Mm. And you could put eight people on it. Wow. And we would that thing up to the top of Cotton Mountain with his six kids and me and my half-sister and that made the eight and our cousin Dennis was the pilot. and We'd go down through there. Mm. With that kind of weight, with that type of hill, you could, re- uh, well, the tears would come out of your eyes and run into your ears. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite an episode.
1: Yeah, it's almost like today's roller coasters is what you guys yeah. used to do sledding. Yeah. Which today's mothers would be cringing even at the thought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and you guys did it on a regular basis and that was fun. Oh yeah. Cuz yeah. you don't you don't see very many people using the runner sled. You can still buy them but I've never even seen anybody using them cuz when they use them on what we try to slide on it doesn't work unless it's ice.
3: Uh, and yeah. And I was born in when you say Wolfboro Center you say oh right in the center of Wolfboro not really uh, Wolfboro Center is back over here yeah uh, and it, there was a sawmill and they had a big big old pile of sawdust. and, and we had the hood from a 49 Ford We'd see how many kids would get into that <laughs> hood and go down off from that
1: oh man you know that's what I love about <laughs> podcasting you get into other things of you know the runner sled thing I just I always find that fascinating when my dad starts talking about that and, yeah. I don't even know if I want to experience it. <laughs> yeah. oh, but well,
3: my grandson was here from Michigan, and we broke out the old toboggan, which was my toboggan. So that yeah. toboggan's got probably well, right, roughly 60 years on it. And we got a pretty good little field here with some slope to it, and he thought that was a. Best thing going. Best thing going. Yeah. you had quite a time.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. That that was the next step after the runners started the toboggan, because so, you could actually go on normal snow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to have to put some photos up for all these southern people that listen to me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: He got to embrace this cold weather, otherwise we'll get you down.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> do. And you know, we ice fish, we slide, we snowmobile, skate. Mm. You, you were, were you on when the snowmobiles were just coming in, or was they already here?
3: Uh, no, they they'd been here. I okay. think uh, first snowmobile I was ever on. I'll bet you I was um, twelve or thirteen, maybe. Okay, my father was in the Lions club they raffled it off the guy didn't want it and he bought it i nice. used to use it to ice fish on lake wentworth right? yeah. yeah an old snow jet you don't see those anymore no you don't no, you my don't. first sled in fishing game was an old 72 zephyr um which you know in by today's standards was my goodness fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish it's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You know, mm-hmm. ride them for 20 minutes, work on them for two hours, that's... that's... <laughs> they weren't that dependable <laughs> hey,
1: even the skidoo's back in the 70s when i started riding they were it seemed like we always were working on them yeah, yeah. constantly getting that carburetor going and getting it just right to to rip around the yard a few times and yeah. don't take it out on the trail cuz you're going to break down there <laughs> yeah, we so, we, uh,
3: we had a, we had some episodes with them that's for sure compared to
1: what what we started with and what we have today just like cars, it's just amazing, the mm-hmm. technology, the speed. Somebody showed me an electric snowmobile the other day. Really? Yeah. So, like, you know, the electric cars, electric motorcycles are making, they're making an electric snowmobile.
3: Wow, well, they got um, propane-operated ice augers. I mean, yeah. when I was a kid, if you wouldn't cut a hole, you had a chisel. You had to <laughs> pound it out, you know. You're right.
1: And then we went to the gas augers, <laughs> and now we got the propane, and they're going to electric now, too. And, yeah.
3: Uh, yeah uh, they having that hook up to your uh, battery drill.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and uh, a lot later, And to just the technology of the sporting and, and what game wardens are experienced through the ages is is kind of neat to see, actually. I yeah. mean, I'm kind of glad I was riding the newer snowmobiles rather than the Zephyr.
3: Yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, growing up in Wolfboro, because Wolfboro was, was had a village that only existed on the ice. It was actually an incorporated town, Fisherville. Uh, when I was a kid... There was a mayor. There was a, <laughs> there was a. Uh,
1: it only lasted in the winter, though, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Fisherville. Fisherville. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that at all. Well,
3: you have got to realize that we, we Ralph Carpenter was one of the first direct executive. Well, not director. But it wasn't executive director in those days. He was one of the first directors, and he lived in Wolfboro. He actually mm-hmm. owned Bondor Island. Okay. And had some exotic animals out there that he used to have a caretaker take care of. But, mm. um, yeah, Harry Perkins. <laughs> God. Harry Perkins uh, lived next door to us. And Harry was a guide for the state of New Hampshire, and he always had the number one badge. And they sent him to all of the sportsman shows down to Boston uh, when... Guys like uh, Jess Scott, who was a longtime game warden, lived Mm -hmm. to be 105, uh, from Newport, was originally from uh, Pittsburgh, and he was a guide who would go down there and compete with log rolling and canoe jousting and uh, casting a fly rod for length. Yeah. And Harry was, he was the king of the hill, and he lived next door to us. He didn't own any land. He lived in the camp between the stone wall and the road in the (laughs) right-of-way. And he walked with a crutch because my uncle fell down walking up a hill, fell down with a shotgun and shot him in the back and shortened up one of his legs.
1: Oh, man.
3: (laughs) You can't make this up. (laughs) And Harry would come to the house every Saturday night for beans because we always had baked beans on Saturday night. Uh Uh-huh. Well, Harry, living in that camp had no running water, mm-hmm. and rather than uh, rather than go someplace where he could take a bath, he, when his shirt got dirty, he would just put on another one, and he'd sprinkle himself with oil of anise to cover up the, uh, the stench. <laughs> no stench, and. Uh, You know, my my sister couldn't wait for him to get out of the house on a Saturday night so she could get underneath the sink and get the fuller brush uh, aerosol to spray the house so she could stand it. Uh, We're digressing here. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, but this is good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Because
1: I'm sure everybody's just, their noise is curling right up (laughs) now.
3: Well, but you know what? I, I guess, yeah, it all kind of... Distant memories, but it was all the things that contributed to the making of Rick Estes. Yeah. You know, I learned to line bees with Harry Perkins. That's what he, he loved to line bees and go find, you know, native hives. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the way you did that was you would catch a bee and he'd go and you'd let him work on, you know, a piece of honeycomb in a little box and then you put anise, oil of anise, around the edge of the box so that when he went back to the hive, not only did he have the food, but he had the smell. If you understand what bees do, they go out, and then they bring back another one. That one goes back. Those two go back. They bring back another one. Eventually, you can find a line. Bee line. They will go straight up, or go in a circle like a woodcock going up, and then they will go beeline line right to the end. So, therefore, you had to use a compass. Mm -hmm. That was my first indoctrination to wilderness navigation was bee lining. Mm. Okay. And so, yeah, we used to go find bees, and then we'd smoke them out and put them in a hive and domesticate them. And we didn't buy our bees in those days. huh? Another guy that that was a big influence on me once I got into the department was uh, Ken Warren down in Peterborough. He was a great beekeeper. He liked the line bees.
1: Hmm. Nope. That's uh. I think you probably connected a lot of dots for a lot of people in that that term line. You know, I'm going to line to that, yeah. and and how that created and yeah, yeah, and and to hear that that's pretty good. And the navigation part and the compass, and you, you actually when you retired, you actually taught navigation. Still do, yeah. Yeah, still do. So, yep. uh yep. And, and I remember the first GPSs uh, that you brought to the search and rescue team. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. they were um, Silvas,
3: weren't they? They were, yeah. Big old brick. Yeah. Uh, with uh, <laughs> a uh, with selective availability, or an ability to get you within ninety-five meters of where you wanted to be, as opposed to today, you're talking probably three meters of, right. of accuracy. You know, right. and uh, yeah, we've come a long ways there. Which that's a whole another, a whole another episode of uh, GPS and maps. We 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 get into those by absolute. I I can't explain it. It was it was a mistake. It was all the stars were in alignment, but we got into that map tech business, right?
1: Uh, and that's the, you know one of the reasons I wanted to come see you because uh, I had spoken to Rick Wilcox and I did a podcast with Rick. Sure. And you know how do we start talking about New Hampshire Fishing Game st- Search and Rescue Team without talking to Rick Estes, who. who Est- uh, I did- I'm going to do this. Thank you, Estes. But uh, I've done it for 20 something years, Rick. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Estes. Um, yes. So, but yeah. But that's that's kind of, you know, I, I wanted to connect the dots for people listening to, to get, because, you know, when we, when we talk to Rick, we talk about you mm-hmm. and, and the formulation of a team that today is so relevant. So much more because, like we talked earlier, hiking is the one thing that's gaining in outdoor recreation. Absolutely, and we're doing search and rescue in the Whites, and yeah, from navigation. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that's a whole thing. But that's that's one reason I, as I wanted to talk to you to to bring them into the next podcast, you know, so they can understand where this all began.
3: Sure. Well, it's it started way before then. I mean we had a search and rescue team back with Paul Doherty and, and uh Keith Kidder and uh Keith was a big hiker. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I Keith worked for me in the end. Uh, he moved down to District Two and was the warden in the Conway area for a number of years. And Keith was my <laughs> he was my main man when it came to um Go to guy, go to guy, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, anyway, and you know, you had um, Bobby Vashar and uh, Bill Hastings. Bill Hastings was the old man of the mountain, no doubt. You yeah. Know, he he really um, did a lot with search and rescue. He had that Gorham area. He had no choice. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, but we didn't have we didn't have the level of of search and rescue that we have now in the in the back country it was a lot more of our focus when i first started was lost hunters mm-hmm. and uh, if you didn't have during deer season especially the first part of it when it was really a lot of folks out if you didn't have two or three a night every night of the season you mm. weren't paying attention right and the way we did that was you know was um try to go and um get a response from somebody and, and then take Whether a compass it's
1: shooting three shots and getting a response right. and
3: take a, take a compass bearing on them, walk in and then back azimuth back out. And that's what you did every yeah. night.
1: And know? we had the bull mooses of the day. Yeah.
3: Yeah. We, yeah, that was, yeah, that, that was kind of, uh, it, it worked, it, but it, had the potential of hurting somebody because they'd start to walk to it in the dark. And if they'd had all the implements to get out on their own, they probably would have come out anyway. Gotcha. So you didn't want them walking. Okay? Gotcha, gotcha. So that's why with the advent of the penetrator, the siren with the loudspeaker. And right. So you could talk to them and say, don't move because I'm going to take a bearing on you and when I get there, I want you to pee there, you know. Right, right. And then, of course, over the years, then you got cell phones and all. You know, it's right. just it. You know, it's. It keeps getting better and better and better. But w- we, that was probably our biggest focus as far as search and rescue. Although, we had a lot more drownings when I first started. I remember one year we had seventy drownings statewide oh my goodness. for the for the dive team. Wow!
1: For a small state like ours, that's substantial.
3: But. Uh. Again, not unlike hunter safety, with boating safety, mm-hmm. we've cut that down to life jackets. If you get seven mm-hmm. drownings per year now, you're probably doing pretty well, right? You know? So, um, and that's uh, same way with with shootings. I mean we we had a lot of um, shootings every year and. <laughs> It appeared that the district two had more than their share of fatals, so we ended up making the red book that you all use mm-hmm. now, um, right? So that we had some blueprint that we could use to, you know, investigate these, and everybody knew what their job was and how to do it. And that's that's that. Yeah. that's what precipitated that was stuff that came out of District 2, actually.
1: Yeah, and that red book, I'll tell you, as a trainee and as an officer, came in so handy to grab that and have a blueprint, like you said, to go to a shooting, to know someone's got to go to the hospital, and a line-by-line checklist of what you needed to do. It was
3: priceless. And I I remember that uh, then Colonel Alley took that to the Northeast Chiefs, and they all worked with it in their own way in their Mm -hmm. own states it's become kind of the yes gold standard of of the way to do it which that's pretty gratifying stuff
1: it it should be it should be It definitely and it it, it helped me and it helped helps officers today because like you said back then you had a lot of them there's a lot less now and because of that, we're not as experienced in it. So grabbing that red book and having that blueprint, again, is priceless to know exactly what to do and what mm-hmm. and, and the things you forget because you can go through there and, and do that checklist and did I do this, did I do that, did I do this. And, you know, it's flawless, yeah. which makes an awesome investigation to put together to bring to the county attorney if you need to or, or to, to vet that stuff out.
3: Well, I think yeah, we did the first case that, we, you know, we always charged people with shoot, uh, misdemeanor of shooting a human being, you know, and mistake mm-hmm. a game. Uh, the first negligent homicide happened all within sight of here, all right over in Tuftonboro, which was a, a muzzleloader hunter who shot a um, bow hunter and killed him. And that was the first time that we ever... Indicted somebody for negligent homicide, and it went all the way through the Supreme Court on several, or three different issues, and we prevailed, and uh, and that uh, that set precedent that we started charging. For the negligence of it. That's when we stopped calling them accidents and started calling them incidents Incidence. because they're not accidents. Accidents, something you can't control. Incidents, mm. something you do because you were negligent or reckless. Mm. And so that's, that, that, you know, that's, and we had, pretty sure we worked with the Red Book on that one, which helped us through all of those court decisions.
1: Right. And you probably amended your red bug some way, somehow. And it's dynamic. I mean,
3: right. you know, all of these, you know, and, and, you know, my background of being in the Air Force and being a crew chief on F-4s, um, you know, they left nothing to chance. There was a there was a SOP or a, a manual for everything that you did there. So, right. So... Bringing that back to mm-hmm. fishing game is where that red book came from.
1: Awesome, nope that that makes total sense. Our paramilitary comes from uh, your generation. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it it, was, it's
1: true, yeah. and I think it's good. It gives us structure, and I know even today we like guys that have been in the military because they have structure, sure. they they, they yeah. understand a lot more. They have navigation skills usually yeah. because yeah. they've been trained in that. So yep. it's it's definitely a a, a good thing to have in your pocket, so no to speak. No doubt. Uh, so that gave you into the search and rescue team because...
3: Well, well Yeah, well, the search and rescue team, um, let's see. It, 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 again, we, it, it, I'd love to tell you, we this was all the brainchild of my generation, but this, certainly there were people who were doing search and rescue, not to the magnitude that we do it now uh, mm-hmm. or to the level that we do it now, but um, um, they were doing it way before me, so... I give the devil his due, you know. Right. Uh, put put the put the the uh, the honor on the right people here. Um, what happened with me was I was sitting in my office as a lieutenant in District Two, and we shared a regional office with District Three, and an officer by the name of uh, Craig Jewett, who was a sergeant over there, came to me one day and he said, "I, I went to a rescue and." We all sat in the parking lot while the volunteers went up, and I was embarrassed. What are we going to do about this? Mm. And I said, well, I I would agree that, you know, we've, we've kind of got off our mission here. Not that, believe me, as far as search and rescue goes, and should it be with fish and game, do I believe it? Yes, because I don't know anybody else that has that knowledge or that equipment to do it. Right. Are we being funded for it? To me, it's an un, unfunded mandate as far as I'm concerned that the state put us in that position and doesn't pay for it. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole nother podcast, okay? No doubt. Um, so anyway, I I went to Colonel Alley, and, and having been in the service, I should have known this is <laughs>
1: I can see where this is going as a former lieutenant myself. <laughs> and I said, you know,
3: there's some concern out there that we're not. Uh, you know we're not i don't know that i said that we weren't doing our fair share as much as we don't, we we weren't living up to our responsibilities um and he said great then you do it and mm-hmm. that was the beginning of that because quite frankly i can remember my first search and rescue which was in nottingham and my lieutenant was in charge of it we had maybe 500 rescuers or wow. searchers for a big search for an old guy that mm-hmm. came up missing and he had got called away on an emergency and said there you go and it was like oh my goodness you know you go right into cold sweat and oh yeah everything. Mm. everybody wants to tell you how to do your job and mm-hmm. it, 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 it everybody thinks oh yeah you sat there and fiddled around with your papers i think we've been uh, the lieutenants and search managers have been labeled as uh what, what is it markers or um,
1: <laughs> highlighters highlighters there you go yeah that's I, because uh, we take those nice yeah, colored I mean, highlighters and yeah. we highlight maps yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh,
3: yeah and there's a little bit more to it there's that. a little bit more to it but <laughs> there's yes. a whole lot more stress to that yeah. you know, you know? <laughs> um so anyway um, it wasn't my it wasn't my first love. Quite, I, when he said you do it, I said, "Oh man, what have I got into here?" I should know better, but I I hey. So we started. It, it became starkly apparent that I don't remember how many officers we had then. Whether we had forty five or fifty at the heights, mm. um, not everybody had the predisposed need to go climb mountains, you know? I mean, that's not why we took the job. We took the job to be game wardens. Mm -hmm. But there were some that, you know, liked to do it or or didn't mind doing it. I'm not sure which one of those terms you want to use. Right, exactly. So I said, well, what if we just equip a certain amount of people, educate a certain amount of people, and make them those people we go to in, for the long-term ones or for the above tree line ones where, you know, as a search manager, your, your first responsibility, my perspective, is for, to your searchers. You don't want to put people in a situation where they're going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Because if they get hurt, then the victim who got himself into this position in the first place is in real trouble now. Right. Uh, So, anyway, we set up the search and rescue team. I think we started with a uh, 12. And, um, yes, a lot of stars came into alignment because it was when GPS first came out. So we got into GPS. Uh, There was a company down in Greenland by the name of Earth Visions who... Have now become my topo and owned by Trimble, which is a big uh, um, mapping company. Mm-hmm. Um, but they got—they were just getting started with some maps that you could have on a CD disc and plug into a computer and have all right. of these USGS maps. And like I like to tell my my students, what we used to do when. We had a search. We'd go and get one map, and we'd make photocopies of it in black and white. And quite frankly, the five colors of a USGS map tell the story. Actually, means something. You just you just took it all away. You made it in two colors. Yeah. You know. So (laughs) we needed to have again, not unlike everything else. We wanted everybody walking the same walk and talking the same talk. And the only way we could do that is if we give them all the same map. Mm-hmm. All the same education, and that's what we did, and mm-hmm. uh, can, can it, we, to, it, it just it blossomed, you know. I mean, I don't think I don't think they got many more than twelve on that team. We we held it at that, right? And uh, but we got into this map program with Earth Visions, and was able to we were able to. Um, guide it in a direction so that it was very useful for search and rescue. Mm-hmm. It also became very useful for forest fires and other things. Right. But it, believe me, the fact that it has still has two coordinate systems and y- you can do this and that with it is because we got on the ground floor. I think what they were looking for was the most computer illiterate individual <laughs> they could find. <laughs> and to do what they call experiment with them <laughs> call what they to do what they call beta testing. And I was a perfect example of that. I had no idea about computers. Okay. And mm. uh, so though that, that's two things that came along about the time we started the fish the search and rescue team. And quite frankly, it, It made a difference. I mean, the way we used to do searches was all of a sudden now people come in with a GPS, download it, you know exactly where they've been, so there's no holes. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of things that happened there all at once that made this team. Right. And there was a learning
1: curve for the officers as well as the managers. And one of my favorite stories, Rick, about the beginning of this team is the the rock you threw out of the helicopter.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I've, I've, yeah. Which not everybody knows that whole story,
1: oh okay, yeah. well, let's hear it from your view because I've heard it from some of the people looking for the rock
3: well <laughs> so we had a pretty good relationship with the avionics side of state police through Francis Lord, who local boy here that we all knew and grew up with, and um Francis was a helicopter. Um, pilot and I said, "Okay, well, th- these guys are getting pretty good with this GPS stuff, mm-hmm. and, but it was still in the place where we had a selective availability or an accuracy of 95 meters, which is you know 95 meters is more like a football field." Yep. <laughs> um, the other thing that entered into that scenario was that the Olympics were going on at the same time. And the Department of Defense controlled the selective availability. Okay. And it didn't have to be 95 meters. It could be as much as they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And still can, by the way. Mm -hmm. You know, don't get carried away with this three meters because if there's a real fracas, they will scramble that so that it is not that accurate. Right. So... That was in play. Um, <laughs> so I gave him a rock with some fluorescent tape on it and went and sent him up, to, uh, up around Sawyer Pond and said, drop that out and give me some good coordinates. Well, good coordinates to a pilot and good coordinates to a person on the ground is two very different things. <laughs> because when you're in a plane, uh, you can see a long way. Yeah. So if you get, you know... Within a, a little quarter, elevation. Within a quarter of a mile of accuracy, yep. you're doing all right. right. Well and then I found out in the long run that he did it without hovering and just tossed it out and then looked at his yep. and marked it. And, um, <laughs> so it wasn't completely accurate and um and never was found. Well, I got one at my retirement party <laughs> that was supposed to be it, but I don't think it was. <laughs> 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 uh, it looks similar, but I don't, oh. I don't think it was the same one. It yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, that was not one of my finer moments. On the other hand, we learned a lot, uh, you know, about... Mm-hmm. Selective availability. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and so... It,
1: and that's what it was about during that time.
3: Uh, absolutely. no, I certainly was no... Um, I was certainly no mountaineer. I mean, I, I did my share of walking up hills. Believe me, I got used to get in trouble pretty regularly with the office because they wanted the supervisor to be in touch with them. And I had this real problem sitting while my guys were doing something, so I would go with them, and then mm. I'd get in trouble with, right. with with the office because they couldn't get a hold of me, mm-hmm. or I couldn't get answers to them fast enough. And that that's kind of... Um, That's kind of secondary, but if you think about it, that's the reason that we did the search and rescue team because it is our responsibility. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it made sense to me that I had to have somebody with each one of those groups that I knew was doing that job because they understood that it was their responsibility. Mm -hmm. So that's when we became part of their team and they became part of our team and that's team building.
1: Okay, right. that's that's Is that kind of where um, Rick Wilcox comes into this?
3: Well, yeah. I mean Rick Wilcox was always the president of the Mountain Rescue Service and Mountain Rescue Service probably suffered the worst loss of all of us through Albert Dow mm-hmm. um, in an avalanche situation on Mount Washington, and they became they became the folks who you'd want to go above tree line or hang off a string on some cliff someplace mm-hmm. um, and they were made up of certified mountain guides through the um, American Mountain Guides Association. So you you could have some trust that they knew what they were doing, Mm -hmm. okay? But even at that, it's not their responsibility. No, no, I totally agree. It's ours. Mm -hmm. So we needed to have somebody there accountable, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the bottom line for me was... Okay, so we go and you do a search and rescue. It's the Fish and Game Department's responsibility. You're in charge, so I'm boiling this down. You're in charge, so you're responsibility. And if something happened, if somebody got hurt and we were taken to task for it, it wasn't adequate for me to say, well, I sent Rick Wilcox up there and this is what happened. Right, no. You can't not do Rick, that. It's not Rick Wilcox's responsibility. It's Rick Estes's mm-hmm. responsibility. So I need to know that I sent Wayne Saunders up there with them, who is my emissary and right. who is going to call back when things get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's that's the premise that we worked on here. That that we needed to be on scene. We needed to have some people who could do this, and what it boiled into was a working relationship that you don't see anyplace else in the United States. It just didn't happen that way. Right. Like it happens here.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: I totally agree. Those volunteers are invaluable. We couldn't do this without them. No. The the 45, 44, whatever it is, number of wardens, when you start talking about a search of 500, and we've all had those. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you have you have a kid lost. You'll they come out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. So you got to you you've got to know what instant command system's all about and how you're going to run this, right? And it's a big responsibility. It's lives are at stake. Yeah, I think you in know, the McCarthy
1: I, case where we had buses. Absolutely. You know, carting people around searchers and Absolutely. Yeah, hundreds absolutely. and
3: hundreds and hundreds of searchers. One that comes to mind is uh, and again, I remember the kids names, I don't remember the grown ups' names. I don't know why, it's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But Cameron Papetry up there in Berlin when the when mm-hmm. he came up missing and the mill was still running and the people running the mill went to all of the workers and said you can stay here and work or you can go work for look for Cameron and 500 of those people walked out of that that's, mill I was gonna say <laughs> and they showed up on their doorstep saying what do you want us to do
1: Mm-hmm. yeah that's that's a whole different ballgame yeah yeah a lot of organization a lot of yeah a lot of management
3: yep and so you know you and again you get those 500 people, and you don't know. Mm-hmm. You have no idea their capabilities, what their physical abilities are. Mm-hmm. So, again, now we will get into this volunteer system where, yeah, sorry, if you come to me and you say, oh, yeah, I got this many people, don't. I'm not looking for numbers. I want to know that those that number of people know what they're doing, and they're going to be okay.
1: Right. Yep, and that's for the creation of the search and, and rescue teams came from, the that's volunteers. That's how that all
0: worked out, and these volunteers had this. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com
3: Had this mantra that, you know, the reason we're doing this is not because we get paid, because they get paid nothing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Eh, they may be doing it for the glory, but I don't think so. Yeah.
1: And is Cameron, that's the one, the iconic picture of Cameron on Bob Bryant's shoulder... Coming down, yeah, all that's smiles.
3: Whole, the, 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 you, you might not want to bring that one up because that one is, well, it's got a little bizarre side to it. Um, it went on for, I think Marty was, Marty Garabian was lieutenant up there then, and he, he worked it for a, an afternoon and an evening with his own people. And um, this young kid just walked away uh, in, in back of Berlin, you know, over mm-hmm. on the over on the west side, and uh, consequently, the search and rescue team got called in there, and we needed some other people. Not that Bob was on the search and rescue team, but we needed some other people, so I brought my sergeant with me. Mm-hmm. They can be useful. They can <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Actually, I think probably Bob's found more people for me than any one particular person that ever worked for me. Wow. He just has that karma. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he had a GPS of his own, an old Garmin 62, which if you can find one now, you probably got to hang on to it because it's a collector's item, I think. Problem being is he didn't have a great deal of knowledge how to run (laughs) it. And that's okay. Uh, he was not on the team, so wasn't expected to. You know, I mean, he's just—he you know, was just there. And he came to me and he said, "Hey, uh, the guy here from DOT that has a woman who works for him who knows where this kid is. I said, what are we doing?" Mm. Well, get her up here. Yeah, she did it by dowsing.
1: And that's him. like the stick.
3: Well, actually, she used wires, but yeah.
1: Like dowsing for water.
3: Yeah. I guess they were driving down the street, and it was all over the news, and she said to her supervisor, so I could find that guy. Give me a map, and I can tell you where he is, where that kid is. So the guy went and got a topo map and said, yeah, show me this. And she did her little thing with the wires and put an X on the map and said, it's right there. So I'm getting this from Bob. I said, yeah, where's this DOT guy? <laughs> mm. Yeah, Bring him over here. So he said, yeah. Now, I've used clairvoyance on a couple of occasions, and my attitude is I'll do anything to b- bring this to an end. I don't mm-hmm. care. What, it, I, I, what have I got to lose?
1: Right, right. It's more information. It's a possibility. And
3: in the, the whole makeup of a, of a search, it, it was where we were going.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: So to have somebody go through there and and mark a baseline, do a hasty search, give me an idea of what kind of, uh, of, you know, consequently where he was going. If you wanted to fall down, you had to cut the trees down to fall down. Otherwise, you'd never fall down. It was too thick, you know. Mm -hmm. So I set up his GPS and gave him a compass bearer, and I said, you just go till that thing tells you you're there. And he walked in there with the guy from DOT and was pawing his way through this jungle of whips that had been cut, you know, not too long ago and came into this place. there was a big rock, and there was Cameron sitting on a rock. Wow. And she was within – she was good selective availability. I would say she was within a couple hundred yards of away. She had that axis where that kid was. Wow. Ah. Uh. That's pretty interesting, did that continue on? Did you ever
1: use that again,
3: or I, I mean I can tell you her name today, who she is, but I've never seen her since,
1: really yeah,
3: we had another one that um was all about water from the lakes region mm-hmm. she she would come periodically. I never sought them out. You didn't have. You don't have to. You've, mm-hmm. you've been a lieutenant. You right. know. If this goes on for more than a day or two, they're going to start coming out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily all clairvoyance as much as people who think they know where this kid is. Right. Because I've lived here all my life, and I know where he is. Mm-hmm. You need to go here. But on occasion, you get a somebody who says, I've seen it in the dream, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that and so again, what do you do? I mean, you say, yeah. I mean, I suppose you could laugh it off and say, yeah, that, yeah, great, thank you, thank you for your input, you know, and move on. On the other hand, what do you got to lose? Right, right. Stranger things have happened in this world, and have somebody have a have an apparition or, or, or epiphany of where something's located. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I've doused water all my life. And it works, and it works. This is the first artesian well I've ever had. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always had dug wells. And that's right. how we found them with a f- fork and stick. And they're still sought after. Those people. Oh, there's books about it. Yeah, no, no doubt.
1: But um, that lady in the lakes region—was she the dreamer that's had the dream?
3: Or yeah, was she, she was a more dowser, about water. Or? She's more about water. Now she just—was she successful? Oh yeah, she was. Huh. Yeah, the first time. It, Ever happened to me was if I don't know if I remember right or not, but we had a a dam that went out in Alton Mm -hmm. and washed a big hole in the in the road and a whole bunch of debris. Well, in the process, took this woman who was trying to get away from it in a truck and swept her away. Mm. And uh, we were on Route One Forty at the. Fire station there, Central Fire Station in Halton. And we'd set up a command post. And uh, we would we work in a lot of incident command there because you had a lot of different situations from <laughs> propane tanks floating around in the Merrimack River to, uh, you know, the lost woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I guess I won't use any names this time, but because. Uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but um, one of the officers who was on the dive team came across the bridge and a woman stopped him and she said, you see that basketball? And the the top of the Merrimeding River was just nothing but debris from lawn chairs to propane tanks, basketballs, you name it, it was all there Mm -hmm. from the side of that hill. When that dam let go, it brought everything down, Mm -hmm. including her. And... uh, she stopped him going across the bridge, and we couldn't dive because there was no surface mm,
1: it all was debris. all it
3: was all debris mm. so uh she said "You see that basketball right there and he said, yeah, she's right underneath that basketball in the river He didn't say anything he just mm-hmm. passed it off yeah, and uh, we ha- again we had the helicopter Francis mm-hmm. was Surveying that debris to see if he could see this woman amongst all this. Right. It was devastation. Getting that bird's eye view. And I noticed that when he did that, all of that stuff shifted from the prop wash. Mm -hmm. I said, cool, we'll do this half of the time. So, Francis, can you go over there and just drive all that stuff over onto the west shore? And we'll put somebody in on the east shore and we'll do our normal dive thing and at the time we had top to bottom communication it was yeah. just coming on and the guy who met this woman on the bridge was manning the earphones to the diver and so they got in the water they were doing a search over there and all of a sudden the guy on the bottom says I've got her and the guy who talked to the woman on the bridge looked up and she was looking him right in the eye and said that's where she is she couldn't hear it. <laughs> the hackles went up on his neck, of course, because yeah. he's going, oh, oh, "Oh, this is far too bizarre for me." Yeah, and she nailed it. Wow. And she did one other one for me that was up uh, on Cattle Landing, and I took her out in the boat. <laughs> you know, you again, you know, you. <sighs> you're the supervisor, you've got the dive team there that have their own supervisor, and they've been there for two days, and they looked everywhere, and we're just getting ready to say, it was one of those deals where the boat showed up, and where is he in 24,000 acres right. of water? Mm-hmm. And she shows up, and she says, hey, if you'll take me out, I'll show you where he is. <laughs> With that much, that, that's where it is. And so I took her out, and she said he's, Right there. And I looked at our, bu- we've set up buoys when we do that so we know where we've been and where we're going. Mm-hmm. And there was a little hole. We hadn't been there. Now I got to go back and convince the dive master that we need to go out and do one more. Why? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's quite a talk, huh? Just cause. <laughs> <laughs> and they went out, dropped the anchor, went down the anchor, and there it was. Wow. So it happens. Yes. You know, do I think that you need to hire somebody that does that on a constant, consistent basis? Uh, I'm not sure I'd do that.
1: Yeah. Because I'm sure
3: as much success there was,
1: has been unsuccesses,
3: too. Yeah. You know, you've had them. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, if you remember, we had a big um, Learjet. Thing. Over right. in Lebanon, we look for for like ever, and we are getting an extraordinary amount of of pressure to find these guys from a guy who's next door neighbors to Steve McQueen or something like. <laughs> anyway, it was coming hard from the governor's office. So we need to go find this guy and we this this plane with two two people in it. We just didn't have enough to go on. I mean, mm. we worked it and worked it and worked like it. Like a needle in the haystack. Right. And that was one where Clairvoyne came. And we flew her. Mm. It was a different one, than we flew her and didn't, bah, that didn't work. Yeah. And it was, what, three, four years, five years before some forester walked across right. that plane wreck. Yep. Yeah. You needed to get that lady from Berlin up in the plane. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs>
3: It was, uh, anyway, they, those things happen, and you know it makes it makes for good stories. And Absolutely,
1: great I'm, podcast. I'm not,
3: uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not big on fabrication, so I got to tell you, <laughs> some things are stranger than fiction. But. No
1: doubt about it, no doubt about it. But uh, certainly, a uh, good to pass that along, and it's a resource. Let's face it, it's a resource that you can't really ignore. I-
3: again what what you gotta look at what your goal is what your goal is is to find somebody or get somebody out or and uh, you know i've used god rest his soul uh brian abrams found out we had a channel nine helicopter oozing around um mount scaro one day and said you know it's gonna be a lot easier to take this guy up and pick him up with that helicopter. <laughs> a little bit of a liability using a civilian you know, yeah. <laughs> helicopter, but we did it and, and we got him off. You know, and, and that that was. Uh, that.
1: Ch- and Channel Nine had a scoop,
3: <laughs> and they had they had hand knowledge about that one. They filmed it. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. that's awesome. So that's I, you awesome. know, and I would hate to say that we've. Or leave the impression that we fly by the seat of our pants and it 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 it's it's from my perspective, it's very sophisticated anymore when we do search and rescue. Mm, I would agree. And now with the advent of winter mountaineering that the fellows that I talked about earlier that started this off a whole long time ago they never had that magnitude of of mm-hmm. winter work, right? You know, they were busy doing fish and game work, you mm-hmm. know, and it wasn't there to do. But it we've been saddled with it; it's our responsibility, and yeah, we'd like to have the state pay for it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, we still got to do it, right? And. Yeah. The body, I, I once had another lieutenant say, this, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be doing this. And I said, okay. And I was doing the paperwork. I was, I was tracking this. And what I found out was that about even me, who I went to all of them, was only about 6% of my time. And what I said to that lieutenant was, if I can give 6% of my time to do something that I disdain and really... Brings me into a cold sweat for 95, 4% of doing what I love to do. I'll make that trade any day of the week. Yep, I would agree with
1: that. But
3: I I think it's more than 6% now. (laughs) I'd be (laughs) surprised. You would be? Yeah. You think it's still about 6%? I would be surprised if the average warden in the state of New Hampshire does more than 6% of his time in search and rescue. Are there areas that do more than others that, that are saddled with it? Absolutely. On the other hand, my nearest brush with death was on Mount Monadnock, not Mount Washington or Mount Chicago or some, you know, Arctic situation. Uh huh. I was a- when I was in the trainee when I was a trainee down there. I thought I was going to die in uh, a winter
1: situation. In a winter
3: situation,
1: the I mean, most hiked mountain in the eastern seaboard.
3: And I had Dunham boots, and you know, uh, nobody issued me a pack good thing was that EMS was based in Peterborough, so I went and bought a pack at the behest of, of Kenny Warren, and um, we went up there with a, an EMT that had low-quarter shoes on. We got up there, and there was a problem because all the trails on Mount Monadnock were painted on the rocks. And it was covered. And it was covered. So what we had to do was we'd go up there, and we'd go as far as we knew where we were and then send out other people, and they'd brush it off. And we'd go to that point, and we went, that's how we get up there. And the guy was, was passed on a long time before we got up there, not because we were uh, crawling our way up there, but because he, he was dead when his partners left him. And uh, we had a state trooper with us who was a very large man. And uh, with Ben, and I think Ben is still down there as the park manager, He's the only guy that had an ice axe. So now we get to come down all of this stuff. Ben would slide down a ledge, self-arrest with with the ice axe. He would catch the next guy. That guy would catch the next guy. That guy would catch the next guy. Rick came down, and then came the trooper.
1: Wow. And everybody caught I him.
3: About, I was about two inches tall by the time I got off there of half to catching him. Because wow. he came down there with a great deal of terminal speed, believe mm. me. And we just weren't equipped. Right. Didn't ha- and, and so, again, in the making of, you know, the constant making of Rick Estes, that was another life lesson that told me, if you're going to... When I'm, when I'm saddled with this idea of having a team, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to tell you right now, they are going to be equipped. They're going to have everything they need to do this with, mm. or I'm not doing it. Right. I think the No first, matter what the cost. I think the first year that we did that, I spent $21,000, which was big money, $21,000 on equipment alone.
1: Wow. Yeah, and the constant upgrade and the and, use. And it's and always
3: something new coming along.
1: Always, yep, new and better. But that makes your job easier. And, sure. You know, life-saving. Yep. The jet boils the guys carry now, The you know, all that stuff. Well, it's look just, at this this side-scan sonar. Which, yes. What a boon. Yeah, and the things we're finding with it.
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable.
1: Mm, no doubt.
3: So, no doubt. Uh, you know, I... I think my greatest satisfaction out of being the team leader for the specialized search and rescue team in New Hampshire is in all the years that I did it, I had two injuries to my rescuers. One of them was a stick through the leg and the other guy was a firefighter from a local fire department who blew a knee and we had to lug him down. Mm -hmm. Other than that... it's
1: a pretty good record. So if I... And
3: I think overall we have a very good record. Absolutely. Absolutely. You never hear of... You know, you do around the United States. I mean, you go up in a helicopter, and anything could happen to you, and it would be a mm-hmm. bunch of people all at once,
1: right? You know, but I think because you have those specialized search and rescue, like the Androscoggin Valley Search and Rescue Team, Not MRs, sure. the Pemi, they train their people, they make sure they're trained, and then we use these specialized volunteer groups. Like you said, nowhere else does that occur. Mm-hmm. To the level that it has to occur in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Absolutely. It's uh, astronomical, and uh, that's pretty awesome. And I really appreciate you sitting down with me, learning a little more about Rick Estes. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, your experience as a game warden and uh, bringing that into the search and rescue and developing that team to, to what it is today, Rick. Uh, and I think, you know, others have, have grabbed that ball and continued... Oh, wow. In that thing, but yep. it's it's great that that was organized.
3: Yep. And it's never it's it's never been lesser since we started it. It's always been more. Yes. Oh, that's great. Thank
1: you very much for sitting down and having a chat with me. You bet. Please join me, game warden Wayne Saunders, and other game wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's
2: Watch. Every once in a while,
1: it's fun to go like just full blown redneck on these fish. This is like high tech cane pole fishing
0: right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama city beach has to offer during chase in the sun Sundays at 9 30 AM Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper and you're listening to Stands Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint podcast network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.